Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. John chapter 15. We're going to uh, come almost to the conclusion of John 15. We're going to wrap up, as it were, Jesus's um, teaching on I am the true vine. And so with that, it's important that we give a brief recap because we're diving into some things that are really important, almost seeming like he's going back to the metaphor so that we can rightly understand everything that he has taught us in this. We have to kind of get the, um, the, the 30,000 foot view as it were. And so just a couple of things that are important for us to remember as Jesus has been teaching through the statement of I am the true vine um, is first and foremost, remembering that the, st- the I am statement of I am the true vine is not so much a statement on some type of agriculture culture, but instead is a statement on union with Christ. The whole premise here is this, that Jesus is the true vine and we by grace are his branches, that every ounce of life in us flows from him. Meaning that if there is any life in you at all, you don't get to look at that life and say, my goodness, how awesome I am to create life in and of myself. Instead, when we experience, when we taste life, we look to Christ knowing that it flows through him, knowing that the vine is actually supplying the life that we need. In the exact same way, we can also see that there is fruit that is birthed from our union with Christ. Friends, if you are able to take inventory of your life and you're able to see fruit that is produced in you, you must understand that it is not produced of you. It is produced only through your connection to the vine. So if you take inventory of your life, if you see affection for Jesus, if you see obedience to his command, if you see love for the brothers, if you bow to the authority of scripture, if those those things are evident in your life, then we do well to simply say all praise to the vine. Because apart from him, apart from the life that he gives us, those things would never be evident in us. As a matter of fact, each of those things are totally contrary to our natural state. And thus we look at the vine and we say, y'all, praise be to the vine for he is able to give us life and he is able to even in that produce fruit in us. When we experience the father's nurturing care, whether that be him pruning us that we might bear more fruit unto him or that be him actually cutting off and removing things altogether. We look and we say, praise be to God, the father cares for us because I am connected to his son. That all the nurturing care that comes to the branches is ultimately a result of the Father's unique care for the vine that he has cultivated and that he has been cultivating really since at least Genesis chapter 3. And so those are just a couple of things that are important for us to recap, but I think it's also important to understand the primary motives behind each of these things. If you look at John chapter 15 in verse 11, Jesus clarifies all of these things that he said. He's talked, he's communicated to them what it looks like to abide in the vine. He talks about the fruit that's produced in it. He talks about love for the branches, the father's nurturing care to the branches. And he says this concerning them. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One of the most important things that we understand about our connection to the vine is that it must be the source of all of our joy. 
Far too often our hearts are satisfied and even enthralled by things that will produce a faux joy, something that is actually, it will fade with the wind that it will come and it will be burnt up with the slightest bit of heat. But the joy that we have in Christ is joy that is actually, well, I think even First Peter would articulate it, that it's inexpressible. And not only is it inexpressible, it is incorruptible. That the joy that we have in Christ will be joy that we carry on into eternity because he is eternal and our union with him is also eternal. And so he communicates this to us that our joy may be full. And so what I'd like to do is really take that theme and jump down and understand what Jesus is articulating in this passage that we have before us today through that same lens. Now, this may seem odd to you as we read the text, because when you read verse 11, you think, my goodness, all of these things are wonderful. They're splendid. They're joyous. How could they not produce joy in me? And then we're going to read verses 18 through 21, and perhaps it is that you will wonder, how are these things going to spark joy in my soul? How is it that, my, that I am going to praise God, that he will be the joy of my life through these things that we are about to discuss? But so with all of those things in mind, I would give you the sermon in a sentence and then we'll read the text. The sermon in a sentence is this, the branches of the true vine cherish the love of God and endure the world's hatred to their joy. We read it again. The branches of the true vine cherish the love of God and endure the world's hatred to their joy. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 15, we'll read verses 18 through 21. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. John chapter 15, verse 18 says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Let's pray together. Father, we come with many reasons for joy. We come to celebrate the fact that we have life in the vine and that is great joy to our souls, that there is fruit produced in the life of each of those who are connected to the vine and it is to our joy. But Father, we come to passages like this often and we wonder how can there be joy here? Lord, would you help us to see that the love of God, that the beauty of being in union with Christ, regardless of its repercussions, is the greatest of joys. Lord, that if we have Christ, we have all. If everything should be snatched from our hands, if we give ourselves, our bodies to be burned, if our houses are ransacked, we have Christ and that is all. Lord, help us to see the joy. Help us to say with Peter, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May our eyes be fixed on him this morning. For he is indeed our all. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
there are two major things that I want to walk us through this morning. And the first is a final evidence of union with Christ and its origin. We'll look at that really in verses 18 and 19. And then I kind of want to consider how it is that the branches are to live in the world. I mean, we've seen a lot of concepts of union with Christ, fruit that's produced in the life of the believer. But what does that look like inside of the context of our daily lives, how we actually live inside of the world? What does it look like for us to be branches inside of a world that hates branches, that hates the vine, and thus they look at the branches and say, burn these people down, get them out of here. And so that's a couple of things that we want to look at. But first, I want to look at a final evidence of union with Christ and its origin. So let's look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, this is where we look back up at that verse and say, okay, it's to our joy that all these things have been said to us that we might actually have the joy of Christ in us. And then we see Jesus look at his disciples and say, heads up, the world will hate you. And this is a kindness from our Lord to the disciples. He's telling them all of these beautiful things that I've conveyed to you, the very clear teaching of union with Christ, a fruit that's produced in your life, all of these things that you are counting as blessed, just FYI, the world will not count them as such. Indeed, the world will hate them and hate them deeply because they hate the vine. And so when Jesus communicates this to them, he communicates it to them that they will actually know there is a hated thing that is coming your way. They will hate you. But the hatred that the world will have for the saints is the hatred that the world has for Jesus. I want you to see that very clearly. And this is an evidence that Jesus gives to them. So I think we do well to ask the question, what kind of hate does the world have toward Jesus? Where did it begin? You know, you look at the language here and it says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me. This is in the perfect tense. The whole idea here is that it has some unknown origin that has continuing impact today. The idea is that Jesus has actually been hated from all the way back, we can say at bare minimum in Genesis chapter three. When we see Adam and Eve take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what you see there is a hatred toward the law of God. What you see there is a hatred not only toward the law of God, but God himself. And in that, we see Adam's rebellion. You see him love something other than Jesus, other than God. That being the case, that is hatred. Any devotion unto the Lord that is not a total devotion is not worthy of him. The devotion that we should give unto God is a devotion that is wholehearted and indeed unbreakable. And so what you see here is this hatred of Jesus that has really had an origin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And if you'd like to see some illustration of that, just consider your state before you were converted. And some of us, even in the midst of our conversion, still have these, these, these lingering effects of sin and we see that our, our love is not yet perfect. But we can still feel the ounces of hatred within us any, any and every time we rebel against him. And so when we come to see this hatred that the world has for Jesus, we can see it in our own lives, but we can also see it throughout redemptive history. Men have been haters of God since the beginning. And today we see that so clearly, do we not? We look at all of these circumstances. If there's anything that people hate today, it's any absolute truth. It doesn't even matter what it is in this point in time. But the idea of a truth in any shape, form, or fashion is considered the greatest of faux pas. How dare you speak in exclusivities? Friends, Jesus is exclusive. And any abandonment of that truth is an, is an exercise of hatred. This week, as I was ill, I was trying to redeem the time by watching a couple of videos on YouTube, and there was this video called Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. 
And what you saw here was this, this Jew make these statements of, well, I'm not, I'm not against Jesus. There is no, no neutrality with Christ. It is not a thing. We like to present it as one. We like the idea of riding a fence, but there is no riding of the fence with Christ. He is either your all or you are in open rebellion against him and you hate him. Don't be satisfied. Don't accept these offers of neutrality with Christ. There is no such thing. And what we see here in this statement is Jesus saying, the world's hatred for me is not some like lackluster hatred. It is a perfect hatred. It might be guised under some gentle hatred, but it is an actuality hatred. Friends, we must do well to remember this and we can't water it down. If we are not looking to Christ as the great love of our soul, then we must be quick to say, then you hate him. Then you hate him. And perhaps it is you think that's a bit harsh. Well, it's not harsh. It's true that any rejection of Christ is a hatred of him. When men look at general revelation and they see the splendor and glory of God in creation and they look to, they look to this beauty and they maybe prescribe it to just um, a, a coincidence or to a false God. That is an exercise in hatred. And I would go to the extent it is not only an exercise of hatred, but it is a clear indication of their suppression of the truth from Romans 1. That there is a hatred of God and we see it worked out in many ways. We see it worked out cordially and we see it worked out vehemently. We see men hate God verbally and on a stage. And we also see people that we love. They will look at you and they will gladly tell you that they love you but they hate the God you serve. There is no in-between here of a love of God and a neutrality with God or a hatred of him. Brothers and sisters, it is one or the other. And that is clearly articulated not only in this passage, but in passages like Ephesians 2. There's only enmity with God or a love of him. And so what's interesting about this then is that there is a hatred of God in the natural world that would thereby indicate that those who are of the vine, those who are the branches would also be hated. The whole premise here that Jesus is making is if the world hates you, which is almost laughable because of course it will, he says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Listen to this verse from 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 and 16. Now this should first and foremost give some delight to our souls because it's an indication that we are actually connected to the vine. But it also gives us some insight into our interactions with people. Notice what 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16 says. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, being, who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. To those who look to Christ and see nothing but a man. To those who look to Christ and would say, certainly not divine. They have had ample testimony. And they hate you because the life in you testifies to their death. The life that is given to those who are truly in the vine is something abhorrent to them because they are lovers of death. They actually have an affection for it. They desire death. And the life that is in the saint of God is life that they abhor because it condemns them. It shows them their condemnation. Saint, first we should look at this and say, praise be to God, there's life in me. And it also indicates to us how our interactions with these people, how they, when they hear our arguments, when they hear our testimony of the gospel and the life in us, when they abhor it, do not think that they are abhorring you. They are abhorring Christ. Now, we have to do well to not make this seem like, well, if you're being a, if you're being a bit obtuse, 
that people hate you, then you say, well, praise be to God, I'm being hated because I'm connected to the vine. No, sometimes you're hated because you need to repent and you're probably acting sinfully. But if you are going forth in the right mind of preaching the gospel, of testifying to Christ, and people scorn you, they scoff at you, then we say, Christ is being born witness in my life. Praise be unto him. We count this as grace to us. We count this to our joy. But then Jesus does something rather unique. He makes this shift. It almost seems like the exact same, uh, the exact same argument, but he adds something in that I think is vitally important for us. And it maybe prompts a question. Is being hated by the world worth it? I mean, have you ever experienced this, being absolutely hated by the world? I mean, they, they look at you and they, they, I mean, you're despised. You go into a room and you're immediately thought the fool. You're immediately thought to be the ignorant person who simply is intolerant or whatever our culture would dub us today. Is it actually worth having the love of God in Christ and the hatred of the world? And Jesus comes in and presents this case and he does so in brilliance as he always does. And he, I think, presents this answer. Is, it, is being hated by the world worth it? And I think the answer is this, only if being loved by Christ is better than being loved by the world. Is the love of Christ better than the love that the world has to offer? And Jesus answers this question and does so well. And so I would just like to present this case to you. So the first thing to point out, if you were of the world, you would have the love of the world instead of its hatred. Jesus is giving you that to some degree as a guarantee. If you are of the world, then you will have the love of the world. Now, that does prompt a question, well, what's the difference between the world's love and the love that Christ has to offer us? And he does this linguistically. First and foremost, we look back up to verse 12 and he says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Blake pointed out last week that the word there is agape. It is the idea of a deep love, almost the idea of an unconditional love. And then Jesus changes his language as he speaks of the love of the world. Now, the word is phileo. It can be used in a positive sense, but I think Jesus is essentially saying to them, it's lesser. It's not as much, it's not the same. There's no comparison that the love that is offered to you in Christ can actually be compared to the love of the world. I think we can say with uh, the Apostle Paul that the present sufferings, the love of the world is not worthy to be compared to the love of the Father. It cannot be compared, but just for good measure, let's do that. What's the love of the world like? Well, if you notice the language here, it says this, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now, the language there is really important. We use it as a term of affection when someone loves you as their own, right? When dads look at their best friends, um, their best friend, their child, words are hard, child's best friend, they say, well, I love you like my own. I'll buy you meals, do all that. That's a term of affection. But this is not what's being said here. The idea here is that they love you because they see, you, they see themselves in you. The whole concept is I'll love you as long as you're like me. I'll love you as long as sin is present in you because ultimately what's happening there is, is it is a self-love. It is sin-loving sin. This is not a hard concept. The love that we see the world give is a self-love. It's all it's capable of. If you want to experience the love of the world, you better be of it and you better be of it well. Otherwise you will have a lackluster love because the love that the world gives is, a, is self-loving and self-loving only. Just to give a couple of more things that it is, it is self-preserving. It simply only cares for self. The idea is a multiplication of sin that it goes on and on and on. It is self-serving, but ultimately friends, it is self-defeating. Hear me, the love of the world dies when you do. 
And just to be real honest with you, it's been dead the whole time you're alive anyway. It's not a genuine love. It's not a true love. The whole idea that Jesus is saying is the love of God is infinitely better than the love of the world. And so it goes back to the question, is it worth being hated by the world to have the love of Christ? To that we say, yes and amen. It is infinitely better to have the love of God in Christ than it is to have the semblance of love in the world that we must conform to it ever constantly and change with the wind that it might love us as its own. Brothers and sisters, this is exhausting. The love that is offered by the world demands your conformity to it, but it does nothing to aid you in conformity. It simply demands that you sway with the wind, that there are no absolutes, that you simply do as you will. It's almost the idea of the period of the judges. And man did what was right in his own eyes. This is the love the world has to offer you. Now, for the sake of comparison, I think we would do well to perhaps ask the question, well, what's the love of God in Christ? Well, first and foremost, we know it to be unconditional. Look at the language here. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Can I just remind you of verse 18? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The reason we can't water down the hatred that the world has for the Lord Jesus is because we, when we do that, we demean his saving power. Consider for a moment the language that we were of the world which means that we were haters of God, not neutral. It doesn't matter if you were born and raised inside of a faithful congregation that preached the word. Until the Lord Jesus birthed love in your heart, you were an enemy of God. You were a hater of God. And the whole idea of him and his infinite love taking people out of the world, he is removing from them, from their aversion, their hatred to him and birthing in them something foreign, something alien, we would call it love. The love of God is unconditional. It is eternal. It is sacrificial. It is all benevolent. It is wise and it is unbreakable. So what can we do then? How can we see this and see it with clarity? Well, I think we do well to look back up to verse 12. And it says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus has already put this on display. He has already said, if you want to know what the love of God is, I want you to understand, I want you to look into the way that I have loved you. Now, we can see this in two, I think, really important ways. First and foremost, we can see this all the way back into eternity past. When we see the Father selecting for himself a people that Christ will redeem, he gives those people to the Son and the Son perfectly keeps them. This is the love of God. It is unconditional. It is unmerited. It is unchanging. It is an eternal love. It is not fickle like the world, that it changes with the way that you do your hair. Instead, it is perfect and eternal. And should you rebel against him, actually, let's just go ahead and consider that if it was based on merit, then he certainly would not have chosen you. It is based on love and love alone. It is based on a sovereign love, on an unchangeable love, on a love that is based totally on his will. And so friend, if you stand in the love of God this morning, then we stand there based on the immutable decisions of God and his immutable decisions as they haven't changed in eternity past will not change in eternity future. He has chosen us in him and since we are in him, we will be in him. And we will not be in him for a time. We will not be in him for a moment. We will be in him eternally. Saying, this is the beauty of the love of God. You know, we look, consider the, 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 the love of the world and we see it dead and dying. In the love of God, we see it give life and give life and give life and give life. Never ceasing to give life. 
It is a true and immutable love. We see it not only in his election, but we also see it in his death. We have been trekking toward the cross. The whole concept of the book of John has been moving us to the crucifixion. And we look there even now and we see the love of God in Christ, that he would bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What, is, what causes this? What is this born of? It's born of love for those who are his. It's born of love to the Father and it's born of obedience to the Father, but it is also born of the love that he has for his, that he has for his church. Going all the way back, I think, into John chapter 11, we're reminded that he would shed his blood for his people and that he would bring them all in. Saint, if you have the love of God, please hear me. It is infinitely better than the love of the world. We would be fools to trade it. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself in the love of the world, know that you are experiencing a love that is dead and still dying, that it will fade and it will be gone. And when you stand before God on the day of judgment, you will have nothing to present before you except your good works, to which he will say, away with with you, you evildoer, I never knew you. The contrast is clear and only a fool would choose to have the love of the world. And I think we would do well to say with this great hymn writer, could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is not worthy to be compared to the love of the world. Friends, we must stand in it and it must be to our joy. The love of God is infinitely better. But we would do well to remember that we were indeed chosen out of the world. And 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 gives us great insight to this because as we speak of the love of God and his election of us, I think that we can often become haughty and puffed up if we do not understand it rightly. And there is nothing more foolish than one who believes an election based on, based on a total freedom of God's will, an unconditional election, as it were, who are haughty and puffed up. It is, an, it is the greatest of foolishness. And so what can we do to be reminded of this? How can we, what does this love of God do with us? Well, I would argue that it brings us humbly before God. Notice what 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 says. This is lovely. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring the bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is no room for arrogance before the love of God. If you stand in it, if you enjoy it, know that you were placed there by it. It was not done by some affection that you've roused in yourself. If we would take 1 Corinthians and argue anything, we would have to argue that we above all men are foolish, weak, and, and almost nothing is the language here. That apart from God and his infinite grace, we would find ourselves separated from him eternally. We come to meditate upon the love of God. I am convinced that what the Lord Jesus is doing when he says, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, is reminding them, reminding his disciples, you will be hated, but it's infinitely better to know my love. But also be prepared. This whole idea of if the world hates you, Jesus just articulated to them, It's coming. It will come your way. And so that being the case, we see that hatred is a mark. 
Hatred is a clear indication that we are of the vine. Friends, if you claim to be a branch of God and you are at perfect harmony with the world 24-7, I would probably argue that you don't know the vine at all. I'm not saying that we should mark ourselves by bringing upon persecution, but friends, if there is no discontinuity between the saint and the world, we're missing something in the Christian faith. We're abandoning things that I think Jesus meant to be paramount, meant to be clear. And so what will that look like? How will we interact with the world? Jesus gives us this answer in verses 20 through 21. He says this, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The very first thing that the Lord Jesus does here is remind him of something that he has just said. Everything that we've really discussed has been flowing from this idea of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Notice what he says in John 13, 14, John 13, verses 14 through 17. This is what he's just quoted. A servant is not greater than his master. He reminds them of this. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So what's the mark? What is, it, what is Jesus getting at here as he's talking about how these branches will interact with the world? First and foremost, he's reminding them that their lot will not be better than his. When he endured suffering on our behalf, we are grateful for that. When he endured suffering internally and told us not to be troubled, we rejoice in that. But friends, we should not be surprised when we experience persecution because they hated him. The vine was hated and therefore the branches will also be hated. They will be despised. But in light of that, he reminds them of his own humility and his service unto them. Saints, we are fools if we believe that there will be no service born in us from the master who served us. If we know Christ, if we have experienced his humility and his service of us to ransom us, to bring us into fellowship with himself, to stoop down as it were, We would be liars, should we say, that we love him and do not mimic him. When Jesus says this to them, he is reminding them certainly that they will have periods of suffering and turmoil and persecution. But I think he is also reminding them of our task. The whole theme, this constant refrain is love one another. And Jesus does not exempt this passage from that refrain. Love one another. What is it that marks the church of God so clearly? is that we love one another, that we are servants unto one another, not because we are all worthy of service, but because Christ is. Christ is worthy of all service, honor, and praise. And if we are to be his students, if we are to be his servants, and even as the former passage told us that we are to be his friends, we must look like him. We must aim to look like him in every way, shape, form, and fashion. And if we do not look like him, is he the one giving us life? If there's no conformity unto Christ, what is our source of life? Will the branches not look like the vine? Will they not bear the same fruit? Will they not evidence that they are connected to the vine? And so saying, I think we do well to simply look at this and say, do we look like our master? Do we look like Jesus? Is that our aim in life to to care for one another, to, to give ourselves to one another, to love one another well, that we might mimic our master? And the whole premise here is this, that if you look like your master, you will experience the same persecution and also the same joys that he did. 
This is not the idea of you working these things out, of you working in a way that you'll receive these things. It's instead saying, if you're united with him, expect persecution. And frankly, on top of that, expect friendship inside of the body, love for one another. Let's look at how he breaks this down. So first, he reminds his disciples of his humility and service and his expectation with them. This is where we have to ask the question, does, do, are, are we being conformed to the image of Christ? Do we look like our master? And then he goes on to articulate it this way. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the basic idea is those who hated and persecuted Christ will hate and persecute his servants. I just want to give you two references here that I think are vitally important for our understanding of this. First, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And just for a moment, the brief context of 1 Peter is this church is about to endure the greatest forms of persecution imaginable. They are about to see their brothers and sisters be hung on trees and lit on fire in Nero's garden so he can see his garden at night. They are about to be thrown into uh, arenas, mauled by bears, mauled by lions. All of these things are about to occur. And he looks at them. Peter looks at them and says, don't be surprised. Don't consider these things strange. They're going to happen to you. And then he goes on to say this, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And this goes back to that original question, is the love of Christ worth the hatred of the world? Well, if the glory of Christ is the delight of the saint, then we would say, yes, by all means, if my suffering produces glory and praise unto Jesus, then yes and amen, almost we could say, bring it on. Because what is the result is infinitely better. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and 11 also articulates this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, very important word there, by the way, falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want you to notice the common theme in both of these verses. Rejoice. The persecution that is resulting results from righteousness, re results from being connected to the vine, results from longing to look like Jesus is to be rejoiced in. It is to be rejoiced in. But not only do we see that the persecution will result from us living unto Christ in the world, but it also we see this lovely phrase, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Those who loved Jesus and kept his word will delight in the apostles' teaching. I want you just to consider for this, Acts 2.42, this is interesting. This is the verse that I think every church's foundation should be. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Saints, if we love the Lord Jesus, if we delight in his word, we have no other option but to delight in the apostles' teaching. For it communicates Christ to us. It lets us behold him and see him as he is, that we might look to him our all and rejoice ever constantly. And so we see both these things at play. We see those who hated Christ will hate us. Persecution will come. It may come in various ways, but it will indeed come to the saint who longs to live unto Jesus. But it also brings about this great delight, this fellowship, this love for one another that's in the body of those who have loved Jesus and long to keep his word. Lastly, I want you to notice the last phrase that we find in verse 21. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. I want to be brief here, but I just want to give three applications. Out of all these things, we rejoice when we are persecuted, for it shows our connection to the vine. All of these things have been marks. They've been indications that we are connected to the vine. When the world hates us for righteousness, for pursuing Christ, when they see our, the life that is in us as a result of Christ's finished work, that should cause us to rejoice for it is an indication that we are actually in the vine. And an indication that we are in the vine should be our greatest delight because we desire to ever constantly abide to remain in him. Next, we rejoice when we are loved by and love the brothers for it shows our connection to the vine. The beauty of the local church is that we get to experience this in community where we are loving brothers in Christ, but we are also being loved by the brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the greatest of joy, and it is indeed an indication that we are a part of the vine. The whole premise of everything we've read through is love one another. If you want the clear and sure sign that you are in Christ, do you love the brothers? Do you love the saints of God? Are they a thrill to your soul when they show up to bring good news of the gospel to you, when they stir you up to good works, when they call in you just to hear the name of Christ from another's mouth in a pleasing way. Is this the delight of your soul? But lastly, we mourn. I want you to notice the language here. We who have tasted of Christ, we who have seen him as beautiful, as lovely, as the greatest treasure of all time, it says, but all these things they will, be, they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Friends, persecution reveals their hatred of the vine and the vine dresser. Now, we do well to not respond in hate. This is what's very important and perhaps the thing that just greatly distinguishes the church from the world is the world most certainly does hate the church, but the church does not look at those who are in the world and hate them. We long and desire for them to know the one who sent Christ and to know him well, to see the beauty of the gospel, to speak of the gospel to them often that they might be brought into the church. That's the uniqueness of the love of the body, the uniqueness of the love that we have in Christ, the life that we have in Christ is because we long for others to have that same life. The whole idea of having life, the whole idea of having anything that you enjoy and delight in that you don't speak of is a lie. It's just in totality a lie. Saints, if we have the life of God, if we've experienced the beauties of being connected to the vine, how can we do anything but herald that great truth? It should ever constantly be on our tongues. The reason that these people are hated is because they are speaking of the gospel. The reason these people are hated is because their lives are constantly being bent to the will of God. It is their delight to serve him, to live unto him, to praise him. Friends, if you aren't being hated, to some degree, I think we need to ask, are we truly worshiping? Are we worshiping the vine that we are connected to? Are we actually living unto him? If you find yourself professing to be a Christian, if you find yourself progress, professing to actually be connected to the vine and it doesn't impact the way you live to such a degree that people see you are not of this world, but you have been selected, chosen out of it, the question must be, do you know the vine? Is he the source of your life? Or are you simply a professor that possesses nothing? 